Good morning, everyone, and welcome again to our podcast sponsored by SIDSL, the Centre for International Development, Social Entrepreneurship and Leadership at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Our theme is Getting to Better Together. My name is Richard Borden, and I will be your host. Before I go any further, I wish to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land, the Gabi Gabi people, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emergent. As I have been uh, stressing to this point in our different episodes, and certainly did introduce in the introductory one, the idea of getting to better is captured by this idea of development as we interpret it which literally means, in our language, getting to better. One of the issues that emerged some uh, decade or so back was the idea that development itself was open to all sorts of interpretations. And it could be said that runaway corporatization was development. Uh, The transformation of wetlands and forests into living areas was development. And that's perfectly true. But one of the things that people started to get concerned about was that the trajectory that such development was on was non-sustainable, was not able to persist in its form or be managed in such a way that it would be resilient and would be able to persist into the future. So with that in mind, it is my very great pleasure today to introduce my guest, Jen Dolan, She is the head of sustainable education at Western Sydney University, which, as it happens, was my old tramping ground. Good morning, Jen. Good morning, Richard. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to acknowledge uh, that I'm talking to you all from Darug country at the foot of the Blue Mountains on um, the edge of the Sydney Basin and the Cumberland Plain and the Hawkesbury-Nympian River. And um, I'd like to acknowledge Elders past and present and uh, Aboriginal people and leaders of tomorrow. Your background is intriguing in that um, you were an economist in the corporate world and then you made this massive transition to involve yourself in sustainable development. Do you have a pathway that you can recognise of how and why you did that? Look, it's a really um, interesting question and um, something I've been reflecting on in the last um, few days. I guess, Richard, it was a combination of purposeful pursuit and strategic serendipity. (laughs) And um, I'll give you a little bit of uh, a potted history of the professional practice of Jen Dolan so you can see actually how those two came into play. I I did. I had a a very um, didactic economics degree and I moved into the corporate world at a time when uh, corporatisation and neoliberalisation, globalisation was basically spreading its wings across the world. And I had uh, this education that didn't, it didn't teach me to question anything. And I had a very um, unsatisfactory decade working across money markets, big insurance companies, and then also working in uh, London with telco uh, industries. Um, From there, and I knew something was wrong. I knew something was wrong that I was in the wrong place, but I didn't know, I couldn't make sense of why or how or where to go from there. But what actually sealed the deal for me was I then was fortunate fortunate enough to uh, travel. And I travelled to two really emblematic places that changed my world and changed the way I saw the world. And the first place was uh, the Ukraine, where, um, where World War II refugees here in Australia. First place was uh, the Ukraine um, under Gorbachev at the time of the sort of... Um, coming down of the Berlin Wall and the sort of disintegration really of the Soviet Union. And then the second place was Africa. And I was fortunate enough to have six months in Africa. And those twin immersive experiences 
changed my world forever. And I knew I had to do something that wasn't in corporate finance. Excellent. When you say, say it, it's actually a profound change, isn't it? It's not just, I'll change my opinion. But my goodness me, what it is I actually stand for uh, is now under question. Absolutely. Uh, I remember being um, in Kiev, which is where my family was, and uh, my great uncle didn't come home. Um, he finished work at three o'clock and he came home about six o'clock. I was there for about a month. I knew that he worked close to the flat where we were living with the, my family. And I found out at the end of the trip that he didn't come home because they found out that I liked watermelon. And he went and after, <laughs> bizarre, and vodka, um, but I liked watermelon. And he went and lined up for, because that was at a time where there was no, uh, the goods and services and supply and demand in the Ukraine was really tight. And he went and lined up for two hours every day after working in a factory for 10 hours to buy me watermelon. And I remember going into the shops and actually seeing uh, goods and services that I thought was just something on tap in Australia and just being so profoundly affected because it wasn't something that I read about in books. It wasn't something that, you know, I saw in a documentary and it wasn't something that was happening out there. It was something happening to me in my own flesh and blood. So, so it was extremely, extremely disturbing. Um, and I, then I began to question, why didn't I know more about this? Why, why wasn't I, why wasn't I more informed? I felt sad. I still feel un, uninformed, I guess, now, even quite some time later. But I'm trying. I'm trying. So from that time on, I actually really did try to immerse myself and read and learn more. Um, after that, I went to Africa and um, it was a similar experience, but sort of in reser- reverse in terms of embracing the, the wildness of the um, wild parks and the wild spaces there. I, I remember coming back to Australia and at that time my babushka, who lived until 97, it was like she actually just only then embraced me as a person because she was really well, and I didn't realise in my 20s, she was really quite well educated and quite well, um, had quite a lot of opinions that she kept to herself about democracy, socialism and capitalism. Uh, and communism. And it was only when I came back that she felt that she could start to have these conversations with me, which lasted until the rest of our lives. And Babushka's your grandmother, right? Babushka is my grandmother. She's my, uh, she was um, born in the, uh, born in the Soviet Union and uh, uh, after the Russian Revolution and she um, survived the collectivization of the Ukraine. She was um, in the slave labor camps of Nazi Germany and she made a home here for 50 years. Yeah, she profoundly influenced me. But it was only after, so my family never questioned what I was doing in the world or what my, what my career was about. They were just pleased that I was at university. And um, when I came back and started to really question that, that was when my grandmother started to really inform and work with me around these great challenges of our time, which are now loosely called, I guess, sustainable or sustainability or sustainable development challenges. I'm a bit dissatisfied with that phrase at the moment, but I think what it stands for is what my life, and indeed I know your your life and many of us are concerned about and are about building back better is a much better uh, phrase, Richard. Yes, that's true. Let's uh, leap ahead here a bit. You finish up working in the uh, what was then the Office uh, of Sustainability within what was then University of Western Sydney. That big leap... In terms of sustainability then, and you've just sort of 
flagged the comment I'm about to make. But what do you understand by sustainability? Uh, and then I'm going to ask you about the sustainability development goals and how you relate to those. But let's just step back just a little bit. What does sustainability mean to you? Well, it doesn't mean what many people um, take it on the surface to mean, which is basically trying to just uh, address really um, our operations or how we do our current business as usual. For me, sustainability, and I think it's probably, it's an ethic and it's a journey and it's a practice, but it's actually also a radical agenda for critiquing and trying to learn, move our way forward or learn our way forward to a better place. And that better place for me is really clear. It's actually about economic vitality, but situated in environmental uh, integrity and social and a, a cultural well-being. So for me, it's it's a re it still is a big radical piece of thinking and action that um, we all need to move towards. I think the word's been co-opted co by essentially um, capitalism and a neoliberal agenda. Um, that, that's why capitalism and, uh, has been so successful. It, it uh, embraces things in its way. It's a big capitalist machine and it takes these terms. And now um, I see a lot of worrying uses of the word sustainability, sustainable development, sustainability, sustainable practices because it basically has embraced them and put blanketed it over a, a, a our continued destructive practices in the world. Absolutely makes sense and it coincides uh, with one of my uh, my favorite authors on the topic Aidan Davison an Australian uh, in Tasmania who talks about sustainability as a contestable concept that gives rise to an agenda of good questions about how we should be living our lives. And as you say, that's an ethic. And one of the things that we're pursuing in this particular podcast series is the whole idea of how we come to public judgment, how we bring our values to bear. And in doing so, and your stories prior to this, this part, uh, have been a perfect example of how existentially, how, how our very way of life, if we are prepared to step beyond our comfort zone, gives rise to questions about what it is we value and why we value them. And then if we are prepared, as you are and certainly were, to say, well, you know what? I don't think that the values that I'm living by at the moment are adequate for whatever reason. And that may be related to your own personal well-being. It might be the well-being of human beings writ large. Or, as my favorite uh, expression goes, it is the inclusive well-being of people with the rest of nature. Absolutely. I mean, I'm really passionate about the fact that humans are of the world. We're not in it or we don't own it. We're not stewardships of it, of the world. We are, and that's very different to being of and entangled within the world. And I think that's a really interesting point in the sustainability discourse of how we make sense and make knowledge out, out of that. And I think it's a really important one to address, particularly when we think about the questions of ethics and values. So let me now jump to today. What is it that you now do, Jen, in terms of your everyday expressions of what it is you believe relative to the matter of sustainability and sustainable development? And I might start that part of the conversation by asking you to briefly outline what you understand the sustainability development goals are. 
Yeah, sure. So the Sustainable Development Goals, it's such a mouth, mouthful, but S, SDGs, SDGs for short. The SDGs um, are a framework that were developed by the United Nations in uh, 2015. Um, and they basically took the, um, the old Millennium Development Goals, which were very much focused on human well-being and human health, and expanded them to this quite complex framework of 17 SDGs or Sustainable Development Goals, which were really incredibly complex, but really well articulated in expanding the idea that humans of the world. So they address things like uh, climate change, uh, migration, peace and development, equity, equality, uh, clean water and sanitation, etc, etc. The really interesting thing about this framework is that it was agreed to by 194 member states, of which Australia was one of them. And um, that's an extraordinary undertaking if you think that the whole world essentially came together and agreed on this framework. But um, I'm continually thinking of that Pirates of the Caribbean movie where they weren't rules, they were more like guidelines, and this is where the kicker is. So some countries have really taken these SDGs and this framework on and basically embedded it in the DNA of their policy and and governance strategies. And other countries have gone, mm, yeah, well, doesn't really, uh, we've got other agendas, we're not going to um, take these on as seriously as others. So in Australia, there's three different prime ways uh, that, from my perspective, I think that governments, academics and community see the SDGs. And I'll just outline them for you because I think they're really interesting. The first one is that uh, it's a basically a neoliberal United Nations bureaucratic agenda to take over the world and perpetuate business as usual. It doesn't really do anything. That's one. It's quite cynical. It's quite that there are a lot of flaws in these SDGs in that there's 169 targets underneath and some of them are so loose I don't even know how you begin to measure them and some of them basically conflict with others. So that's the first way some uh, these SDGs are seen. The second is um, that it is basically a framework to save the world and this is the path through for humanity and the more than human world to make a better place or build back better. And the third one is, and this is where I sit, you know, because this is how I see the benefits of the value that it's done for our institution particularly, is it's an aspirational framework. And so when you look at these framework and the 17 colourful, quite childlike colours of these goals, everybody can see a place in there. Everybody can see a place to go, okay, well, how do we actually use this to build back better? Uh, and the other thing in that that I think is really important is that these 17 goals should not be siloed and they actually should be should be considered as a cohesive systemic framework, which is incredibly challenging if you think about how our um, even our public health system is set up um, in total isolation from our environmental health, in total isolation from our um, labour policy frameworks. So there, that's in a nutshell, the big picture of how I see those, what they are, how I see the SDGs, and how I see different views of the SDGs. Excellent. That was really clear. Thanks, Jen. Let me uh, ask you now to translate all of that into really practical detail and talk briefly about two types of projects in which I know you are involved. The local ones, again, with particular reference to working with, with school children, 
um, but also in relation to the networks that you are building up in uh, Western Sydney in particular. And then to flip that coin into the international agenda and talk a little bit about the work that you do in that domain. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll flip it back, Richard, and talk about the international framework first, because that actually informs what we do at, at this very place-based community and regional level. So for the last decade, and it's uh, we've been reflecting on this because for the last decade, the university has had what's called a regional centre of expertise on education for sustainable development. And I know um, with that name, Richard, you and I have qu- had quite some long conversations about what that means and how it plays out and in how various people think of it. But essentially what it is, it was founded by, um, the idea was very simple, and it came out of the uh, UN Decade of Education for Sustainable Development, which finished in uh, 2014. So it's 2004 to 2014. And the idea was that um, there are all these amazing things happening at a very place-based grassroots community level that schools, NGOs, businesses, councils, universities were all basically struggling with this idea of uh, sustainability and the sustainable development at that time and education for sustainability, but they were all pretty well much doing it um, in isolation. And the UN um, concept of this was to establish a global learning space for ESD or Education for Sustainable Development. And what they decided to do was something very, very simple but very clever, was they were going to give an endorsement to each region that basically agreed to come together and to discuss what their specific regional challenges were and how they were going to address them in collaboration with each other. And so they founded this um, United Nations University endorsed RCE network and uh, Western Sydney University has had uh, a network here now for 10 years. And we work with our international partners, particularly through Asia Pacific, in uh, transferring knowledge and sharing Um, sharing best practice, but we are all very much focused on our own place because that's where change happens, right? doesn't happen somewhere else. It's situated. It's situated in our own communities. So we've been able to work through in the international context, particularly in uh, Asia Pacific, through uh, our um, university uh, mostly with student exchanges through the new Colombo Plan program. And we've had a lot of really amazing uh, projects like that with um, peer-to-peer learning models through with our university students and also our school students here. But the majority of the work then takes place at a local level. So that's how the international um network works do you want me to flesh that out or go into the yes please in terms of your your uh, that river project for instance that i know briefly about you might like to explain that a bit in detail we've done many many different projects at many many different levels but there's two projects now i'd like to talk about one is the hawkesbury nepean river keepers initiative which is a water keepers alliance work and the other one is the hawkesbury resilience project which is a funded project so this ne- network's been very um very fruitful in coming together and gaining external funds to support these collaborative um, initiatives that link and leverage our work together. Um, The Hawkesbury um, Nepean Waterkeepers uh, project is a really, really interesting one. And um, I'm going to be a little controversial here because it's the first time, Richard, I've worked with all women in a group working together. And this is a a project that's basically around 
different organisations coming together to have a voice for the Hawkesbury-Nepean River. Um, we've looked at other international waterkeepers models and riverkeeper models, but what and what we want to do is retain our independence and continue our work on uh, being an advocate for river health. It's formed by um, the university, the uh, a whole range of environment networks, the Caddo Hills Environment Network, the Hawkesbury Environment Network, Greater Sydney Local Land Care Services uh, and uh, Greater Sydney Land Care Network. Um, and it's been very productive and a very different uh, way to work. It's a feminist way of working. We're all women and our, our concern with how we've moved this forward we, is we haven't start, started with the traditional science and the ecosystem and what value does a river bring us and what's the, what's the benefit for human uh, and ecosystem valuation. We've started with a very key concern is how do we feel about the river and what do we care about the river and what comes from that. And it's been a very different way of working. So at the moment, we're just going out with a, a river report card, which is quite different from the other uh, waterkeepers networks because it has cultural and social, basically, reports around that. And we're also working with um, a First Nations group here and using language and First Nations language in that. So that's one, and that's um, one project that's working with uh, uh, community organisations. The second project, which is the Hawkesbury Resilience Project, is working with um, community residents in the in the Hawkesbury Nepean area. With basically, or the Hawkesbury LGA. This this LGA has been um, battered by bushfires and then floods and then floods. So there's been funding um, coming through to to for community groups who are asking themselves how to essentially how do we build back better how do we build a resilience resilient hawkesbury and that that is working at a very very grassroots level with um with this book by uh, rebecca huntley which is called how to how to have climate change conversations that make a difference and we're working with a, a great group of community volunteers that we have trained up together to go and have kitchen table conversations climate uh, cafes and village level workshops with funding for these communities that and villages that have been hardest hit by bushfires and floods to ask and work with these groups to say essentially how do we build back better and was what is it you you what are your needs and how do we move forward with doing this it's a perfect example really of uh, the theme again that we've been pursuing through the quotation of um, Margaret Mead the American anthropologist and the idea that small groups of thoughtful, committed citizens, as she puts them, changes the world. And the point that a number of speakers in this series have already made is that it is just as effective to work locally within a global context as it is the reverse. And you've given perfect examples of how exactly that works in a sort of dynamic way. Work internationally, work nationally, work locally. And in the end, each feeds upon the other. In a, in a wonderfully accelerating, amplifying amplifying way. Jen, it's been a delight. It's always, I think, terribly important for us as thoughtful and committed citizens to listen to points of view that maybe we don't consider as often or as deeply as we should. I like the point about working in a group of women with respect to the word that you used of caring, where, as you know, caring is a central theme of feminist ethics. And one of the issues that um, we will be exploring in a, in a future uh, episode will be this whole issue of different views of ethics itself. We had Roger Packham talking recently 
about virtue ethics in particular and its relationship with character. Uh, but the idea of caring, I believe, is a wonderful linkage between the very opening statement that I made today in terms of respecting the elders and the traditions of our uh, custodians, traditional custodians of this land, and where it is that we believe, or many of us believe, we should go next. So thanks fabulously, and uh, we will come back to you if that's all right and invite you back at some time in the future. Richard, I would be delighted. Thank you so much and thank you to your colleagues for this opportunity and I look forward to when next we meet and speak.